We're going to start a new series today, uh, which I'm, I'm very excited about. We're going to go through the book of Acts together. Uh, I don't know about for you, you know, for, for me who preaches regularly, you know, starting a, a new series is like Christmas. You're opening up a new package. It's like ripping the paper off of a, of a wonderful gift, a wonderful present. And like kids getting a toy on Christmas, you know, they rip it open and exciting and they see what it is. But if it's a, if it's a good quality gift... It's not only something that's exciting on Christmas Eve or Christmas morn when they rip it open, but it's something that they will appreciate and enjoy and use for weeks, months, maybe even years to come. And that's certainly uh, my desire. I've been excited about this series for some time, and so excited to open up the book of Acts with you, uh, but praying and trusting that it's going to serve you uh, not just today, but in the weeks, months, years to come. Churches, local churches, go through all kinds of different seasons and and different times. Local churches have times when they experience setbacks and hardship and opposition and decline. There are also other times when local churches experience victories and gains for the kingdom. One church is struggling maybe to keep their doors open. Another is trying to keep its members from being killed, while another church struggles to find room for all the people that are coming in and trying to keep up with the baptisms. And what are we going to do to disciple all these new believers? Church life ebbs and flows. It goes up. It goes down. Churches experience all kinds of seasons. Sometimes churches drift into sleepy contentment. Church life can feel routine, boring, sometimes near dead. Other times, church life feels full of life, exciting. God is moving and things are happening and there's fresh vision and encouraging advances for the kingdom of God. But friends, for any and all situations that churches go through, we need the book of Acts. We need this unique book in the Bible to help us through all kinds of seasons. It is the one narrative book in the Bible of the New Testament church, and it is invaluable. Besides all the needed instruction that it gives and the valuable doctrine that we find in it, it's a book that is vital in helping local churches become and remain vibrant and healthy strong and resilient and most of all rightly focused on who we are and what we're called to be as Christians and as a local church when I think about the book of Acts I always think immediately it's so exciting There's all kinds of great stuff. It's an exciting book. It's an exciting narrative. It's filled with adventure and suspense and joy because God's Spirit is always present and working and doing mighty things. It's also dangerous and terrifying at times, which is fun to read about when it's somebody else in danger. That's great. But when it's you, it feels quite different. But nevertheless, the book of Acts helps us and prepares us Altogether, it is inspiring, it is encouraging, and it is compelling for us to press in towards obedience to our calling as a church, regardless of the cost, 
even the dangers become almost badges of honor for Christians and for the church. So I trust and hope and I pray that the study through this book will have that kind of an effect on, on us, you, me, us together corporately as a local church to enliven our hearts for being the church. We're going to come across many important characteristics of what it means to be Christ's church throughout the book of Acts. Necessary, important, and by God's grace, we'll be inspired and spurred on to fulfill and walk out that calling. The one characteristic that comes through in Luke's introduction in the first 11 verses of the book of Acts is that you and I must be Christ-centered. The book of Acts is about Jesus. This is one of those sermons where I was like, oh, I'm going to tell this church something that they know full well, probably assume, probably move past quickly. I might run the risk of boring you by saying we need to be a Christ-centered church because we are, and you know this, and we say this, and we practice this, but we can't assume it, we can't overlook it, we can't run past this. I'm going to read a couple introductory verses and draw out from his introduction the Christ-centeredness of it. And so I want you to note as we read these passages how much it is and must be all about Jesus. And this is something that needs to be built into our hearts into our lives, and in particular, in a particular way, into us as a local church. I'm first going to read the introductory words to the Gospel of Luke, and then I'm going to read the introductory verses to the book of Acts, both written by Luke, and you'll see why in just a minute. Luke chapter 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The book of Acts is all about Jesus. And so are we. And so will we be all about Jesus. My first point this afternoon is in Acts, Jesus remains the head. Remains in charge. Remains the head of the church. Now, who wrote Acts and why? I mentioned to you that Luke wrote both the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. Now, it's never explicitly stated that he did but all the scholars since the early church have all agreed he's clearly the author of both these books. And he's written it to this most excellent Theophilus who we do not know who he is. But he wrote it to Theophilus as an open letter. So it is for us to read. He wrote to him and we get to read it. Volume 1, the Gospel according to Luke, is all about what Jesus began to do and teach which is stated in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Volume 2, the book of Acts, is the sequel, the continuation, the ongoing story. F.F. Bruce writes this. He says, the implication of Luke's words is that his second volume will be an account of what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension. No longer in visible presence but, uh, on earth, but by his Spirit in his followers. It is a continuation of Jesus' reign. Jesus is still ahead. Listen how John Stott explains the comparison and the parallel. It says, he does not regard volume one as the story of Jesus Christ from his birth through his sufferings and death to his triumphant resurrection and ascension. And then volume two as the story of the church of Jesus Christ from its birth in Jerusalem through its sufferings by persecution, to its triumphal con conquest of Rome some 30 years later. For the contrasting parallel he draws between his two volumes was not between Christ and his church, but between two stages of the ministry of the same Christ. Here's the point. It wasn't Christ did it, and now Christ is gone, and the church takes over. Christ is still Present, above with the Father, reigning over the church. He's still the head, still in charge. He's still ruling the church. How does Luke emphasize this? Well, he's talking to the apostles, and he says, you're the apostles that I chose. I chose. Jesus chose them. He told them this earlier in the gospel according to John in chapter 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit, your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is what Jesus wanted to under, them to understand about themselves. 
Jesus said, I picked you. I chose you. I'm setting you guys up. I've called you together as a team. I formed this team. Now I'm going to give you instructions and send you out as a team. I was the foundation for this. He's the foundation for the church. He's the foundation for the apostles. And it continues that same foundation for you and I as believers today. Do you think of yourself somewhat in those terms? Did you know that Jesus chose you? Do you wonder if Jesus chose you? Are you sure whether or not Jesus chose you? If you have some sense in your soul of who Jesus is, the Son of God, and the glory of Christ, and that he laid down his life for your sins, that he was the one sent from the Father to atone for your life and to purchase you. If you have any sense of that, in all likelihood, Jesus chose you to be part of his church, his family. Jesus came to you. Jesus came for you. If you have any real sense of his glory, he's chosen you. Now, if you stop and just ponder that a little bit, think about that. How does that affect your self-perception? How do you think about yourself if you know Jesus has declared, I've chosen you? It makes all the difference in your identity, who you are, how you see yourself, how you see God. And Jesus is saying something about who he is. At the outset of this New Testament church being launched in the book of Acts, the foundation is going over. Jesus chose them. Then he instructs them next Before Jesus departs, he instructs them. He's still the master. He's still the Lord, always being the head of the church. He has instructions for his disciples. Wait in Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to arrive, receive the Spirit, and then be my witnesses. That's the plan. That's the instruction. Here's the plan. Now, as they're Interacting, the disciples asked this question, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This, this is the question that John Calvin said, are as many errors in it as are words. And Jesus redirects the question. Is this the time that God's going to restore the nation of Israel? Jesus shuts it down and says, it's not for you to know. This is in the category of the secret things that the Father knows, not for you to know. It's quite an amazing thing, isn't it, how explicitly the Scriptures teach that we don't know this. Nevertheless, quite amazing how many times somebody seems to always pop up and claim to know it. 
another word from the Lord, another super spiritual someone or other who's had the direct hotline to God and has been to them revealed Christ's return. Maybe what's more amazing is how many people believe the people they claim to know the time, the day, the hour. Jesus is clearly telling the disciples, this is not your concern. Wrong question. Let's redirect. It's not the instruction. You don't need to think about trying to figure out when this is going to happen. These are the things that the Father knows. And leave it with the Father. What you need to know, wait, receive, and bear witness. Here's the plan. Here's the plan for the church. Receive the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Then go and be my witnesses. Chapter 1, verse 8 is really the key verse of the entire book, and we'll be coming back to that verse uh, many times as we go through our study. It sort of lays out the scope of how this bearing witness is going to play out first in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These are still the marching orders for the church. Be filled with the Spirit and be my witnesses. That's where we're heading. That's the, how Jesus takes us by the face and points us in this direction. This is, this is where you need to go. It's what you need to be thinking about as local churches, what you and I need to be thinking about as members of this local church. What is God calling us to? Be filled with the Spirit and be His witnesses. Second point, in Acts, Jesus is still alive. He's still alive. He showed Himself alive. Jesus made a real effort to show himself clearly to these apostles after his resurrection. You might recall some of the stories in the gospel. They were gathered together in a closed room. The doors were locked, and all of a sudden, Jesus appeared to them. They decided they were going to go back fishing, and they're out in the boat, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them on the beach, invites them up, and cooks breakfast, and they have a meal together. There were several appearances that Jesus made, explicitly wanting to make sure, apostles, you, you must know. In fact, it's a, it's a job qualification for being an apostle. You have to see me alive. You have to be convinced that after I died, that God raised me from the dead. I'm walking here. I'm here physically on this planet you need to see me. You need to know this. You need to be convinced so much about what needs to happen from here forward hinges on the fact that you know I am alive. I don't know if you're trying to muster up some kind of Christianity about a Christ that was but isn't, but there is no such thing. He is very much alive. As went to great pains to make sure we had many firsthand eyewitness accounts to tell us he is not dead. He is very much alive. He is a resurrected Christ. And of course, we know from other studies throughout the New Testament that if he is not raised from the dead, we would still be dead in our sins. 
what Christ offered us, the grace of God in Christ, would, would have no effect had not God raised him from the dead. We would have little or no hope for the future without Christ being raised from the dead. What does, what would our lives look like if we knew for sure he's alive? How would that change us? How would that affect us? The fact that Jesus is alive is meant to characterize our witness, our worship, our testimony. It should be that people might walk into this meeting when we gather and we start singing and, and they, they could very well say, well, I don't believe Jesus is alive, but those people sure do. They seem to know who they're singing about and they seem to know who they're singing to. They seem convinced. And when they visit those community groups and sit and hear those discussions in those prayers, it's like, I don't know, why these people think this, but they sure are convinced that their Savior is very much alive and well. This is a key part of our witness, that we know Jesus is alive. Third point, in Acts, Jesus is coming back. Section that we read towards the end of that introduction talks about Jesus coming back. The ascension of Jesus was really the watershed event. As Luke writes, he finished his gospel with the ascension. He comes back to it at the beginning of the book of Acts and opens with this. So while Jesus made several appearances to assure the apostles that he was very much alive, now the apostles needed to know something else, that he was ascended and reigns from heaven. In other words, guys, he's not going to show up again. Okay? Don't go to the beach thinking you're going to find him on the shore cooking fish anymore. Don't go in your home and lock the door and think all of a sudden he's going to appear. You, you've had all your appearances. You've had sufficient appearances. You've seen him. You've interacted with him. He's spoken to you often about the kingdom. Now I want you to know his appearances to you are done. And they saw him taken up into the clouds and they watched him disappear from their sight. And then the two angels are there and they ask, why do you stand looking into heaven? Immediately, I feel sorry for these guys because it's like, what kind of a question is that? We just saw Jesus go up into the clouds. Uh, of course we're standing here staring up into the sky. What else could we do? What else could be expected of us? What a, what a no-brainer. I would be stunned. Sometimes it's hard to read the Bible and understand all the nuances, tone inflection, and what's all going on in between the, the lines there. But Here's the instruction that we have. These angels were telling these boys something important. Why are you standing around, staring into the sky when he's given you some instruction? Boys, it's time to go to work. The plan is about to start. 
Okay? You've seen him taken up. Okay? You need to know. He's with the Father. He's reigning over the church. He's there. He's not here. Something else is going to happen. So stop staring into the sky. You're not going to be talking directly with Jesus anymore. He's not going to be sitting on the beach with you anymore. We're moving into something. And Jesus is going to reign from above. He's going to send you his spirit. And you are going to be witnesses. So, guys, stop staring. Get yourselves to Jerusalem and start waiting. Start waiting. Because the spirit is coming. They leave one piece of information. Know this. He will return like you've seen him go. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Of all the things Luke emphasizes about Jesus in his introduction, he leaves us with one more thing. Jesus will return. Acts is about Jesus who's coming back. This too affects their witness. This too affects their lives. This too motivates them, compels them, gives them hope for the future, energizes their work and their calling. Here, the parameters of the mission are set and it invigorates the church. The mission of the church is for the time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. I thought I'd give you a very brief lesson in eschatology today about the return of Christ. I'm not going to try and convince you of one view or another, but I thought I'd give you just a little bit of an overview there are several passages in the Bible that talk about the return of Christ. And it's really a fascinating study and very interesting. And there's a, vari a wide variety of opinions. When the scriptures teach about the return of Christ, there's really two key events in the future that sort of shape all of Christendom's view of the end times. They are the millennium and the return of Christ. These are sort of the two anchor events that sort of form everybody's theories of the end times. Revelation chapter 20 and the first 10 verses talk about a thousand year period. That's what the millennium is. This, what the Bible refers to as this thousand year period where Satan is bound and saints reign with Christ. Understanding this thousand years, the millennium, and the return of Christ are what form the basic views about the end. The first of three views, ah, millennialism. Ah, millennialism, meaning no millennium, which they don't really believe there is no millennium. The point is they actually don't believe in a literal 1,000 years. It's almost like a phrase that expresses a long period of time. And an amillennialist actually believes that you and I are currently living in the millennium. It is the time between Christ's ascension and his return. That is how they view this thousand years, this millennium. 
deceased souls of Christians are presently with the Lord, reigning with him. Satan is bound for this time in this sense, in the sense that the gospel is freely preached and he cannot stop us from proclaiming it. They acknowledge that this time is a combination of both gospel victory as well as suffering. To the amillennialist, the concept of already but not yet is key. That's a key to understanding their, their view. Their view includes an understanding that promises made to Israel, David, and Abraham have been fulfilled in Christ and in his church during the present age and the age, some to, in the age to come. That's the amillennial view. Secondly, is that post-millennialism. The post-millennialist, Christ returns after the millennium. The millennium comes, then Christ returns. Actually, quite similar to the amillennialist as far as the sequence of things. They also hold to a figurative interpretation of the thousand years, not a literal one. They're similar to amillennialism in several ways, but they are distinct about the nature of the millennium. They believe that this is a period of ever-increasing victory for the church over time, along with an ongoing decrease in the church's sufferings. In other words, for the post-millennialists, things for the church will keep getting better and better with an increase of prosperity and influence in the world. Gospel preaching will succeed, making the world more and more Christianized, leading to times of righteousness and peace as the church succeeds in her mission. Third category, premillennialism. Can you guess what that is? Yes, the return of Christ comes before the millennium, before the thousand-year reigns. Now, this camp, this group, really takes the thousand years literally. It is 1,000 calendar years. Here, Christ returns and reigns on the earth for a literal 1,000 years before the final consummation. They believe the church will face a great tribulation period after which Christ will come and rescue the church and establish this 1,000-year reign on the earth. Then the judgment and the eternal state. Now, this group has two groups, historical premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. The dispensational premillennialists are those who see a strong distinction discontinuity between Israel and the New Testament church. God saves each in a very distinct way, and the nation of Israel has a glorious future of God, saving them in total in the end times and for their temple to be restored. So now you have sort of the three basic categories. The breakdown underneath those three headings are infinite. <laughs> Details underneath all of those, all kinds of, some fairly sound, some quite crazy theories about all the details of what's going to happen. There is a little bit of shifting that takes place over the centuries in the church, and it seems to depend on how well the church is doing. Okay, when the church is winning and things are looking up, we become post-millennial. It's appealing. We're going to win. We're on the rise. It's looking good. The church is getting stronger. The world seems to be getting weaker. I think post-millennium is the way we're going to go with this. Also times when it seems like the church is losing and the world around us seems to be winning. It's getting worse. Now, I know you've all said this. 
Times are getting so bad. It's getting so crazy. It's getting so ugly out there. Premillennialism works well for you because this is like, it's getting so bad out there. Come, Lord Jesus, and rapture us out of this nonsense. We're not winning. The, the, the world, the badness of the world seems to be increasing, and we need Jesus to come before the millennial reign and come rescue, rapture us out of this trouble. Well, the amillennialist, they sit quietly through it all. E- each of these views has its dangers Okay, the pre-millennialist bomb shelter mentality and the post-millennialist optimistic, we're going to take over the world, we're going to rule the world, we're going to govern the nations because this is the plan of God. And the amillennialist, there can be a tendency to sit quietly in church Sunday after Sunday doing little, concerned with little. But each of these three views also can and has throughout church history provided strong, positive impetus for the church. When the kingdom advances and there are successes in the church, it encourages and strengthens the church and spurs us on to more and greater. We're on a run. We're on a roll. It's it's good. God's adding to the church. God's spirit is moving. Isn't that encouraging? It is. It enlivens and strengthens the church. And so we're compelled all the more. Oh, I want to share. I want to witness. I want to serve. I want to do all these things all the more because we're starting to feel some of the success of what God's Spirit is doing for His kingdom. And the increase of evil and the setbacks in the church also can and ought to cause us to find our nerve and to press in and press on. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. So when the world in its badness keeps increasing, it should and ought to stir up something in the heart of the church, yet we are still here called by God in the midst of this. That's why you should not move to Tennessee and you should stay in Southern California. <laughs> Precisely. Through the advances or the declines, we keep steady, we remain faithful, unmoved, without losing our zeal, regardless of a win or a loss, an uptick or a downturn. We're in this because He chose us, because He instructed us, because He's reigning and He's leading us. I told you, my, my point this afternoon is not to try and persuade you into one view over the other, at least not today. Maybe another time we'll do that. My point is that the book of Acts leaves the church with an extremely important message. Christ's church must be revived. Christ's church must be full of the Holy Spirit. Christ's church must be constantly giving herself to the mission of being Christ's witnesses, regardless of your eschatology. These things remain true in all three points of view, regardless if you have no view of the end times. The truth 
is the same. Here we are as God's people, Christ's church bought and paid for, adopted into his family, and here is what we're called to do and be. Filled with the Spirit, bearing witness to a resurrected Christ, Savior to all peoples until everyone is heard, until everyone has been given an opportunity. Come and meet this Jesus that changed my life. Friends, as Christ Church, we are the sequel to all that Jesus began to do and teach, now empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a continual witness of the grace of God for Christ to all peoples. Being Christ-centered cannot be assumed. It's possible that we could fixate on the blessings of God somehow divorced from Christ, always seeking something from God, but forgetting that we have all things in Christ. That's very possible. We are not immune to that danger. It is possible to see faith as merely some sense of inner confidence that spends like money to obtain things from God instead of having Christ as the constant object of our faith, our confidence drawn from who He is and what He has done. The grace of God is not made available to us outside of Christ. It is given to us in Christ. So my appeal is that we be a Christ-centered church. Something you knew, thought, understood us to already be. But this has to be more than a, a button or a bumper sticker or a tagline on the website. It has to be a way of life. We shouldn't even have to say the words. We're a Christ-centered church. We need to be Christ-centered in how we live. How, how can we do it? I have a couple ideas, not exhaustive. We could sing Christ-centered songs. We could make sure that the songs we sing honor and exalt Christ and talk more about Christ than they do about us. We could read our Bibles with Christ in mind. I encourage you to sign up to How to Study the Bible class, and one of the things we're going to teach you is that the Bible is a book about Jesus, all of it. That all, in a variety of ways, points to Christ. And so we can learn how to read and study our Bibles and, in, in a sense, See Christ in all of Scripture. We can preach sermons that are about Jesus, that are Christ-centered. Oh, they're about you and me. But you and me in light of who Christ is and what He's done. We can strive to keep our preaching and our teaching Christ-centered. 
we can strive to keep our conversations in our community group discussions Christ-centered as well. We used to lead a community group for years, been in community groups for years, and I know how easily the advice starts flowing when somebody says, oh, I'm struggling with this, I got a problem. And next thing you know, everybody's a consultant, everybody's got an idea, spray a little Windex on it. You, have you ever tried this? You tried this diet? You tried this all? And here, and here it comes, and maybe some of it's helpful. But we could strive to make sure that our purposeful conversations are really about Christ, our need for Christ, how Christ has provided what we need. There's a lot of good practical advice out there, obviously, and I'm not trying to be funny that you can't give each other practical advice. What I'm saying is what we're really all about. It's about who Christ is, what he's done, how trusting him changes your life, how the power of God is made real to us in and through Christ himself. You and I can breathe in fresh gospel, Christ-centered air each and every day of our lives, waking up each morning, reminding ourselves that we have been bought and paid for by the one who loves us more than we could imagine that we are no longer our own body and soul, but now belong to Him. I was reading Ephesians this morning and was spending time throughout the day uh, wrestling, but constantly telling me, no, that's the old way. That's the old man. I just read in Ephesians chapter 4, put those things away. Set those things. That's the old way. You've got a new life now. You've got a new way of looking at the world. You've got a new way of thinking. So put on Christ. Put off malice and envy and strife and clamoring and, and bitterness. That's, your, that's part of your old life, not part of the new. Oh, we can help each other. And we can wake up each morning and refresh our own souls in the reality. I am new in Christ. He's purchased me into a, a new life. I have a new identity now. And I'm not who I was. But I'm becoming more and more like who he is. Friends, if we grasp and keep this foundation in our lives and in this church... And we are on our way to being filled with the Spirit and His witnesses to the ends of the earth. Worship team, you can come on up. Father, I pray that you would bless this study. So we're just scratching the surface of the few beginning, opening verses. But from it, I perceive, believe that you are communicating to us how important it is that who we are and how we view our mission begins with one and only one foundation. We belong to you. That you, Jesus, have been 
and are currently and forever will be the head of the church. You purchased us. You've chosen us. You've called us. You've made us your own. And Lord, that you are very much alive and well to this day and will forever be. And Lord, our mission is compelled and our hearts are driven to look for that day you are a Savior who's coming back for his church. Yes, we have work to do in the meantime, but we long for that day. We look forward to that day. In fact, we work even more diligently because we know that day is coming. Father, would you hear and answer this prayer? Make us a Christ-centered church for your glory. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.